Good morning, everybody. This is part two of our series, Jesus the Sower. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Mark, chapter 4. I'm just going to read a couple verses here. Mark, chapter 4, starting at verse 3. I'm just going to read a couple verses here, and then we're going to skip down and read a couple of more verses. Mark, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 right now. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Now skipping down to verse 13, 14, and 15. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us by the power of your word and spirit. And I pray that the fallow ground of our hearts would be broken up. And that our hearts would be prepared to seek your face. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, this is part two of our sermon series called Jesus the Sower. And the whole purpose of this series is to orient our hearts toward Jesus in a new way. To give him a new hearing. You see, we've known him as Jesus the Savior. We've known him as Jesus the Lord. We've known him as Jesus the Son of God. We've known him as Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We known, we've known him in so many different ways. The suffering servant, the Messiah, the soon and coming king. But today, I want us to open our hearts to know him as Jesus, the sower. And when you know him as the sower, you know him as the one who is constantly and continually bringing to us his word, sowing his word, offering, us to us, offering to us his word as seed so that it might be planted in our hearts and bear fruit. Knowing Jesus the sower is knowing him as one who continually brings us the words of God. Now, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we find the context for everything that Jesus does and says in his entire earthly ministry. Mark 1, 14 and 15, the scripture says, After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now here's the gospel that Jesus preached. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel that Jesus preached had three points. Number one, an announcement. The time has come. It's time. The time that you've been waiting for is right now. And then number two, an explanation. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. What time is it? It's time for the kingdom. And then the third point was an invitation. Repent and believe the gospel. Meaning, here is how you enter into this kingdom that I've just announced. And what we need to understand is that in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, there were two earthly kingdoms that were vying for control and loyalty in that location. There was the kingdom of Rome that was occupying the entire Near Eastern world. And then there was the kingdom of Israel. 
Both Rome and Israel wanted to control the space, wanted to control the land, wanted to control the hearts and minds of the people. And Israel was looking for a Messiah, a son of David, who would come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel, who would drive out the kingdom of Rome, who would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, who would sit on David's throne and restore the kingdom of Israel. So they were waiting for a time, but the time they were waiting for was the reestablishment of their own kingdom. Jesus' announcement, when he said the time has come, they must have got all excited because they're thinking time for the reestablishment of the kingdom of David. And Jesus' explanation of the announcement, the kingdom of God is here, actually refuted and rejected the desires of both the Romans and the people of Israel. It's not time for the kingdom of Israel. It's time for the kingdom of God. If there's one thing that we learn from Jesus about his kingdom is that his kingdom is not of this world. It is not an earthly kingdom. It is not a human kingdom. It is not a political kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. It is a heavenly kingdom. It's not time for the kingdom of Israel. It's time for the kingdom of God. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. And in the context of that announcement, the kingdom of God is here. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must repent. What do you repent for? You see, that word repent in American Christianity has taken on certain connotations that are, that are actually foreign to the announcement of Jesus. Because whenever you hear the word repent, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Repent of your sexual sin, of your lust, of your immorality, of your lying, of your cheating, of your stealing, of your smoking cigarettes or smoking weed, of your alcohol addiction, of your drug addictions. That's what you have to repent for. And yes, we do need to repent of those things, but there's something far more fundamental that Jesus was calling for when he called for us to repent there in Mark 1, 14 and 15. What he was calling for was not repentance from these low-level individual sins. What he was calling us to repent for was the hope for a different kingdom. You're expecting an earthly kingdom. In order to enter into this heavenly kingdom, you must repent of your preoccupation with earthly kingdoms. You must turn your eyes away from this earthly kingdom. And open your eyes to the fact that the kingdom I'm offering you is a heavenly kingdom. And to the extent that people were willing to turn their eyes away from their preoccupation with an earthly kingdom, to that extent they were able to hear Jesus. To that extent they were able to receive Jesus. To that extent, they were able to believe Jesus. When Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, what he meant was, you will never be able to believe this gospel of the kingdom until you repent of your preoccupation with an earthly kingdom. And in this one sermon in which he introduces his entire ministry, he sets the stage for everything that he will say and do. This is the synopsis. This is the totality of everything that he came to, to, to say and to do. But everything else is simply a restatement of the announcement and a restatement of the explanation and a restatement of the invitation. Every miracle, every healing, every teaching, 
In every parable, in every parable, he's saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here, but you've got to repent in order to believe this gospel. And it's by repenting and believing this gospel that you can enter into this kingdom. And he had to say it again and again and again and again and again, and he had to manifest it again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because the people's hearts were so focused on an earthly kingdom that even after three, even his own disciples who walked with him for three and a half years, who saw every miracle, who heard every teaching, who sat at his feet and listened to every parable, still after three and a half, even after they watched him die on the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. They saw him give up the ghost. They saw his body being taken down from the cross and laid in the grave. And they were there when he came up out of the grave and appeared to them and walked with them for 40 days after his resurrection and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On that last day on the Mount of Olives, they still had to ask him, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Even after all that time, they're still looking for an earthly kingdom. They're still looking for their original expectations, their pre-Jesus expectations to be fulfilled. At this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still looking for an earthly political Messiah. This is why Jesus never told anybody he was the Messiah. This is why whenever anybody figured out he was the Messiah, he would tell them, shh, don't tell nobody. Shh, keep that to yourself. Don't tell anybody. Why would he do that? Because he knew what they thought of the Messiah. He knew they were looking for a political Messiah. He knew they were looking for a military hero. He knew they were looking for a general. He knew they were looking for a conquering king who would restore to them an earthly kingdom. And because he knew the Messiah they were looking for, he refused to be that Messiah. Don't tell anybody. I'm not that Messiah. I'm not the one you think I am. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but I reserve the right to define what it means to be the Messiah. We are living in a day and time in which a Christianity in America has become a political movement looking for an earthly kingdom, trying to set up a political reign and trying to make Jesus the Messiah of an earthly kingdom. This whole idea of God, of, of America being God's nation, when it's not about a nation anymore, it's actually it's not even about Israel being God's nation. And from the very beginning, we, we get it all twisted up. Remember when Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 was standing outside of Jericho? trying to figure out how to get into the city. And the angel of the Lord was standing there with a the drawn sword. And Joshua said, are you for us or for our enemies? The angel said, no. The question is not, am I with you? The question is, are you with me? It's about a holy nation now. And the holy nation is not a political nation, not a local uh, residentiality. It's not a, about a political sphere. It's a, a heavenly kingdom. And so Jesus now here in Mark 4, after having made this announcement, it's going to explain it in the following way. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, 
and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And then after the parable, the disciples take him in the room and they say, please tell us what the parable means. And Jesus says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Okay, let me break it down for you. The sower sows the word. The word by which he announces the kingdom. The word by which he explains the kingdom. The word by which he invites you to enter the kingdom. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. First thing you must understand is that the wayside hearers are hearers, not non-hearers. You see, we tend to think of the wayside hearers as those outside the church. Jesus is not talking about people outside the church who don't hear. He's talking about people up in the church, not people outside the church. He's not talking about people who refuse to come and hear. He's talking about people who come and hear but don't hear. He's talking about you and me. He's, talk, he's not talking about folks outside the service. He's talking about folks up in the chat right now. He's talking about folks who came and got ready on Sunday morning and sat and are listening. He's talking that the wayside hearers are hearers. All four of these categories are hearers. Non-hearers are not even in this parable. He's talking about people in the crowd. When he's giving this parable, he's looking at the crowd. He's saying, there's four kinds of y'all in this crowd right now. Four different groups of you all. I'm not talking about those outside the crowd. I'm talking to, I'm talking to you. One of the greatest problems in the church is believers who always think the word is for somebody else. Man, Frank really needs this word today. I'm going to send a link to this message to Lucretia. She really needs this word. Let me make this multicultural. Chad needs this word today. I think this word is for Chet. This word is for Julio. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's for Dehan. You know, I mean, this, this word, you know what I mean? It's like, it's for somebody else. That's one of the primary ways by which the enemy disconnects you from the word. Is he, try, he comes first to convince you that it's for somebody else. Look, you need to look at your neighbor right now and say, it's for you. Matter of fact, you need to text somebody because I know you ain't got no neighbor there next to you. But maybe you just need to text somebody and say, this word is for you right now. Somebody that you know. You need to chat somebody. You need to. Anyway, it's, it's for you. All of us at one point, or at one time, or in some way, have been wayside hearers. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, if you look at the difference between the wayside, the stony ground, the thorny ground, and the good soil, there's really, the difference is the degree to which the ground has been plowed. So the difference, the ultimate difference between good soil and the wayside is that the good soil has been plowed. The wayside has not been plowed. That's the only difference. Good soil, the soil has been prepared. The fallow ground has been breaking up. What is that? Hosea 10.12 or Hosea 12.10, one of those, where he said, uh, break up the fallow ground. 
And do not sow among thorns, for it is time to seek the Lord. The prophet Hosea is crying out to Israel and saying, God has some stuff to say to you, but you can't hear it because the ground of your heart lays fallow, meaning it's unplowed. It hasn't been broken up, meaning it's not ready for the seed. It hasn't been prepared for the seed. Do you realize that if you're going to hear the word of God, that you, that you need to do some work to prepare the soil of your heart, to break up the fallow ground of your heart, that if you don't do any preparation work on your heart, the word will come and you won't be ready to hear it. It's going to lay on the surface of your hard heart and the birds of the air are going to come and take it immediately. You heard the word, but it did nothing for you. Why? Because the soil was hard. The seed could not sink into the soil because the ground was fallow and not broken up. And so in this parable, repentance equals the breaking up of the fallow ground of your heart. Now, first and foremost, we must understand that there is a process by which God breaks up the fallow ground of our hearts. He seeks to assist us when he sees that the ground of our hearts have become fallow. He says, let me help you with that. I'm going to break up. I'm going to help you break up the fallow ground of your heart. And you know how he does that? Through adversity through disappointment, through struggle. See, some of you need to begin to look at your hardships differently. You need to begin to see some of your hardships as a gift from God. Now, there's an extent to which this is true, and there's a context in which it's not. If you just lost a loved one, that is not God trying to break up the ground. of Like, that's not a gift from God. It doesn't mean you have to look at every catastrophe as a gift from God. But it means that there is a certain category of struggle, of hardship, that we kick against that we fight against, that we ask God, why don't you love me? Don't you care about me? Not realizing that God allows us to walk through those hardships because he loves us so much, because he cares about us so deeply. He says, I've got words that I'm going to sow into your life that are not going to bear any fruit in your heart unless I do some preparation work and break up the fallow ground in your heart. So I'm going to let you walk through these hardships. And at the end of the hardship, you're going to look back and you're going to be thankful when you see the fruit that comes out of your life on the other side of it. I can look back to some of the darkest moments in my life and I can say truly that I am thankful to God for allowing me to walk through that. I wouldn't have it any other way because I look at things that he spoke into my life on the other side of that hardship and say, I couldn't have received that. I wouldn't have heard that. I wouldn't have submitted to that. I would not have acted upon that. I would not have embraced that. That word would have sat on the surface of my heart and never sunk deeply. But thank God he allowed me to walk through that hardship, that trial that broke up the fallow ground of my heart. And now that the, the ground has been broken up, do you know what the farmer would do every year prior to sowing the seed? First, he would come with the plow. And he would have a yoke of oxen that would be pulling a plow. And all the plow would do is dig deep under the soil and turn it over. Dig deep under the soil and turn it over. Just breaking up the ground, breaking up the ground, breaking up the ground, breaking up the ground. The seed cannot sink deep into the soil unless the ground has been broken up. And so the ground must be plowed. We should begin to see every trial as the means by which God begins to plow the ground of our hearts. When you, that's why James said, count it pure joy when you walk through various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. But the second component, you see, the trial, that's God's part. But our responding to the trial with faith and humility, that's our part. Because what happens is, if you don't respond to the trial with faith and humility, your heart becomes harder because of the trial. If you don't respond to the trial with faith and humility, if you walk through the trial and conclude at the end of the trial that the trial means that God doesn't love you, the trial means that God has abandoned you, the trial means that it works for other people but it don't work for me, the trial means that every other that he believed in God as miracle, I believed I haven't seen my miracle, she believed in God a husband, I believe and I still ain't got a husband, how come God blesses this person and he don't bless me? And instead of allowing the trial to soften your heart and soften your heart and soften your heart, every trial causes your heart to become hard and more bitter and more cynical and more skeptical. And the trial, instead of drawing you closer to the Lord, pushes you further and further and further away. And then you blame God and say, see, if it wasn't for all these trials, I'd be so close to you. If you would have just answered this prayer, why did I cry and you don't hear? Not realizing that the trial was an invitation to trust. The trial is an invitation to trust. Not realizing that because you're not responding rightly to the trial, you're becoming a wayside believer. You're remaining a wayside believer despite the work of the Spirit of God to turn your heart into good soil. And what happens is, every word you hear, Satan is waiting right at the door of your heart and as soon as you hear it, he just snatches it away. As soon as you hear it, he just snatches it away and snatches it away and snatches it away. And you might even hear the word and go, mm, that's good. Mm, yeah. Mm, I agree with that. Mm, yeah. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah. Ooh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. You might even hear the word and agree with it. The fact that you agree with it in your mind does not mean that your heart is good soil because until it descends from your mind into your heart and you begin to meditate on it there and dwell on it there, your heart has not become good soil. It's never gotten into your heart. It's just sat on the surface of your mind waiting for the devil to come. Snatch it away. The first component is the trial. The second component is your responding to the trial with faith and humility. Faith is believing God despite what I see, believing that he loves me despite what I experience, believing that he has my best interest in mind despite what I see, what I feel, what I experience. Faith is believing that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Faith is believing that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Faith is believing that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Faith is continuing to trust him like Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I don't care what comes or goes, I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to believe that he's working good for me. That's faith and humility. Humility is the willingness to surrender my expectations. Humility is the willingness to lay aside my dreams.
Humility in the face of disappointment says, God, I surrender to you. It doesn't have to be my way. Just let it be your way. Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? You see what the disciples are doing? Lord, now are you going to give us what we asked for? Now are you going to do it the way we wanted you to do it? And the gospel of Jesus was, it's never going to be the way you wanted it. It's going to be better. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be greater. But you never enter into the greater until you surrender the good. The enemy of the great is the good. Jim Collins taught us that in his book, Good to Great. Good is the enemy of the great. And humility is recognizing that no matter how great I think my idea is, I think my plan is, I think my desires are, no matter how great they are, God's are greater. He does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or imagine. What he has in mind for you is exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ever ask. Or imagine responding to the plowing of your heart with faith and humility. That's the second part. But there's a third part. Because the farmer would not just plow the ground, but he would water the ground. You see, the soil doesn't just have to be broken. It's got to be soft. He would water the ground. And the water that prepares our hearts to receive the word of God is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, I like, I talk to a lot of pastors. And uh, one of the pastors I was talking to, a young pastor, new pastor, he was talking about how he and his wife got in uh, a big argument on a Saturday. And it was really hard to go to church and minister on Sunday. And I just laughed. I told him, I said, yeah, I've been there probably 5,000 times. I don't know. <laughs> An innumerable amount of time. My wife is probably dropping something in the chat right now going, that's right. <laughs> I, I got a witness. She'll tell the truth. My wife and I have had many Saturday night arguments and some Sunday morning arguments where we're seething with anger. But what happens is, Every Sunday, we come to church and worship together. And what we discovered is that our division cannot survive a single moment in God's presence. We come to church to worship, and God's presence comes, and the next thing we know, we're holding hands. Why? Because the water of the Spirit came and softened the soil of our hearts. The water of the Spirit came and softened the soil of our hearts. Do you realize that seeking the face of God, pursuing his presence on a daily basis is not just about procuring for you an experiential awareness of his presence, but about preparing your heart? Do you realize that every single time you feel his presence, it's not just because God wants you to feel his presence, it's because he's preparing your heart to receive his word? That he does not send his presence for no reason. He sends his presence to prepare your heart to receive his word. Do you remember in the creation narrative? It said the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. There's presence. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Bam, there's power. His, word, his spirit, his presence always prepares the soil to receive 
His Word. So that when you're seeking the presence of God every day, what you're really seeking is the preparation of your heart to receive His Word. The wayside believers, everybody goes through trials. God is constantly trying to break up the fallow ground in all of our hearts. The wayside believers, number one, do not respond to trials with faith and humility. And number two, they don't receive the waters of the presence and power of God that would soften the soil of their hearts. And so when God's word comes, it sits right there on the surface. Never goes deeper. Never goes deeper than the agreement of their minds. And sometimes it doesn't even achieve the agreement of their minds. And they go on hoping for an earthly kingdom. They go on looking for a political solution. They go on with their own expectations of what they want God to do in their lives, hoping for a particular job in a particular place, hoping for an open door for a particular career, hoping for a particular person that you want God to give you as your spouse, or hoping for God to change the spouse you have in particular ways and clinging to it. This has to happen. This ha Some of you have been clinging to your will for years and for decades. And no matter what God does, you always come to, Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, now are you going to change my wife? Now are you going to change my husband? Now are you going to fix my finances? Now are you going to give me that job? Now are you going to give me the earthly kingdom that I'm clinging to? And the gospel of Jesus is always, you don't get it. The time has come, yes, but for the kingdom of God, not for your kingdom. For the heavenly kingdom, not the earthly kingdom. And the heavenly kingdom is so much better than the earthly kingdom, but you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't enter into it, you cannot receive it. Because you're not willing to repent and believe the gospel that I'm preaching to you. You're too busy believing the gospel of your own making. Hoping for an outcome of your own doing. And trying to build a kingdom that is of this world. Repent, Jesus says. Repent and believe the gospel. These are the words of Jesus the sower. Repent. Bring to me your earthly kingdoms, your hopes and expectations, your dreams, and lay them at my feet. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Repent. Turn away. To repent doesn't mean to say you're sorry. It simply means to turn. To turn from one kingdom to his kingdom, from your kingdom to his kingdom, from your way to his way. That's what it means. So many of us have said, I'm sorry, but have not repented because we haven't turned. We haven't shifted our hopes and our dreams. When Peter challenges us in 1 Peter chapter 1, what is it, verse 13? Or verse 11? One of those verses. He says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and set your hope fully 
upon the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. God is setting you up to receive a heavenly kingdom. He says it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's longing to give you the kingdom. He wants to give you the kingdom more than you want to receive it, but you're so busy being preoccupied with your earthly kingdom that you completely miss the announcement that the time has come. The heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God is here. And I'm inviting you to enter into it. All you got to do is repent and believe the gospel. Bow your heads with me right now. When I was a little boy, I was in the nursery. My father and mother were in church. And in the nursery, I was probably, I don't know, somewhere between one and two. I was playing with blocks and I was building an elaborate castle. And I had this big box of blocks all to myself. I remember it so clearly. And I was enraptured with what I was building. And all of a sudden, the teacher tugged on my shirt, said, Benjamin, your father is here. But I pushed the teacher away because I was enraptured with my blocks. I was building something. And she tugged on my shirt again, said, Benjamin, your father is here. I said, yeah. And I kept building. I kept building. I don't want to be interrupted because I'm so busy building. I've got this building project that's grand. And a third time, she tugged on my shirt. Benjamin, your father is here. And suddenly, I turned and looked up. As the door opened, I remember this like it was yesterday. My father walked in. He was wearing a suit, an immaculate suit, a black trench coat, and a perfectly manicured afro and beard. He looked like Shaft. And I remember at that moment when I looked up and beheld my father entering into the room. He looked like he was nine feet tall to me. And suddenly, looking upon him, I forgot about my blocks. I forgot about the kingdom that I was building. All I had to do was turn away from it for a moment and look into the face of my father. And I was enraptured with him. And when I looked up into his face, he smiled at me, and he came and picked me up in his arms, and he carried me home. And I never thought about those blocks again, because the kingdom of my father was greater than the kingdom I was building. This is how many of you are right now at this moment. You're just on the floor with your blocks, trying your best to fit one block to another. You're trying to build yourself a, a palace out of blocks. Every week when you come to church and every day when you open the word of God, somebody is tugging on your sleeve saying, your father is here. You say, yeah, that's, that's cool, but I got to get this built. Your father is here. Yeah, that's cool, but I got to get this built. Your father is here. And the word of the Lord to you today is your father is here. But you got to turn. 
Turn your eyes away from your blocks. Turn your eyes away from your projects. Turn your eyes away from your preoccupations. Turn your eyes away from the kingdom you're trying to build for yourself. And simply look into the face of your father because he's so much more glorious. The kingdom that he has to give you is so much better than the kingdom that you're building for yourself. I implore you today, repent and believe the gospel. I implore you today, repent and believe the gospel. The time has come right now. You've been waiting because you've been waiting for an earthly kingdom, but I'm telling you the time has come right now. There's no more waiting. The kingdom of God is here right now. There's no more waiting. All you've got to do is repent and believe the gospel. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. What does being saved mean? It means entering into a heavenly kingdom. It means recognizing that the kingdom of the Father is greater than any kingdom that you could build for yourself. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every one under the sound of my voice. I pray right now that you would arrest every heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come as a heavenly police officer and arrest every heart right now. Arrest every heart right now. I pray that you would put on us the handcuffs of conviction and don't let, them off. let us take them off. Tie the hands of our pride behind our backs and cuff us with the handcuffs of conviction, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, and force us to hear this word that can free us. Arrest every heart and every soul right now so that you might free every heart and every soul right now. In Jesus' name. I just sense it right now. A shift is happening in the spirit. Right now, I just sense it right now. I don't even have to tell you to do it. I sense freedom is happening because some of you right now are relinquishing your earthly kingdoms. You're casting down your golden crowns before the throne of God. You're laying it down. You're lifting up your eyes. I just sense it. There's a lifting of the eyes right now. You're lifting your eyes above your earthly kingdom, above your hopes and expectations, and you're turning to the Father. I sense it right now that that wayside, is being plowed in many of you. That wayside is being plowed. It's becoming good soil. I even sense the presence of the Holy Spirit coming into your home right now and softening that soil. I sense it right now. Your heart is being softened. You're responding with faith and humility. For some of you, your trials have been reinterpreted right now. And instead of responding to your trials with deeper bitterness, all of the sudden bitterness has been transformed into faith and humility. I sense it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just begin to talk to him right now. Just begin to talk to him right now. Tell him if that's you and you sense that happening in you, it's good that you can't be here because nobody can do this for you at an altar. Nobody can lay hands on you and, and facilitate this for you at an altar. It's you and God. Right there in your home, it's you and God. You deal with him. You talk to him right now. You, you repent. Add to what you need to participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing by articulating your repentance to God. God, I repent. I turn away from my earthly kingdom and I lift up my eyes to you. I turn away from my building blocks and I lift my eyes to you. 
I look to you. I'm going to give you a moment to do that right now. Just talk to him right now. If you want personal prayer, just, just click that in the chat. Repli request prayer. Somebody will pray with you right now. But for many of you, the Holy Spirit is doing this just between you and him, right in your home. Thank you for it, Father. Thank you for it, Father. I give you glory that you've given this morning ears to hear, eyes to see. You said, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. Listen, behold, we turn our eyes this morning upon Jesus, the sower. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've come to us today as the sower. You've sown your word in our hearts. We receive it with faith, humility, and thanksgiving. Water it with the word, with, with the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Let it sink deep into our hearts that it might bear much fruit. We give you praise for it in your precious holy name. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.